Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on cinema and the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, in honor of its 20th anniversary, Nate and I discuss Terrence Malick's 1998 return to the cinema, The Thin Red Line. After an absence spanning 20 years, Malick reemerged from obscurity to deliver one of the most powerful meditations on war and its impact on humanity and nature forces that he finds are inexorably intertwined. On Guadalcanal in 1942, Charlie Company is embarking on a journey to the line, fighting an entrenched Japanese army and their own crippling fear of the unknown. Private Wit, played by Jim Caviezel, finds the beauty in the insanity, taking us on a spiritual journey that intersects with the lives of his fellow soldiers. Searing performances from the likes of Nick Nolte, Ben Chaplin, Sean Penn, John Cusack, and Elias Cotius create a powerful ensemble. Turning proverbial war film tropes on their heads, Malick's elliptical film is more interested in the poetry of war than the tactics. Lyricism is emphasized over action, and the themes transcend patriotism, reaching for the existential, aided by stunning cinematography by director of photography John Toll and a groundbreaking musical score by Hans Zimmer. Overshadowed on its release by another film by a little-known director named Spielberg, The Thin Red Line has faded somewhat from our collective memory. Thanks in part to the Criterion Collection, it will endure. Join Nate and me as we delve into all things Shining. So Nate, uh, this is a film I've been looking forward to uh, discussing, certainly, but also dreading at the same time because I really feel like our conversation, or I should say probably my own articulation of my feelings about this film will be wholly inadequate, um, but I, I figured we'd just start with our own personal histories with this film. Uh, so I'll just throw it to you first. Um, your first experience with the Thin Red Line, and and um, just on a higher level, uh, how it's impacted you over the years. My first experience of it was before the film itself was released. I recall seeing in Entertainment Weekly a fall movie preview, and they had a fairly sizable spread on the Thin Red Line in it. And I recall very much there was a a still photo of. Uh, Adrian Brody as uh, Corporal Fife, and it's a image that actually doesn't uh, appear in the film itself, but I recall very clearly the image that was in the magazine and reading about it. And I don't know if I really knew Terrence Malick at that point in time, but they were highlighting the fact his first film in 20 years, and obviously it's the follow-up World War II film of 1998 after Saving Private Ryan earlier that year. And so I started getting my mind and my uh, my interests peaked pretty quickly about it. And then a little later, there's TV commercials for it. And uh, there was a lot of buzz about it, certainly in terms of the film world. But overall, actually, I think the Saving Private Ryan earlier that year had reawakened people to an interest in the Second World War. And so I went to an opening weekend. Uh, with my dad, and I remember a lot of other friends of mine in high school uh, were also going to see it that particular weekend. And as we saw it, uh, my dad and I, 
I was immediately blown away and absolutely loved the film. That was the best film of 1998. Still think that to this day. And uh, my appreciation has only grown. I saw it actually three times in the theater during its initial run there. Uh, so once with my dad, a little while later with another couple of friends, and then a little while later with some other friends as well. So it was, uh, it was a movie that definitely impacted me right away. And it's one that I remember watching on DVD when it first came out. Uh, and I remember watching it, of course, when the Criterion Blu-ray, I picked that up immediately uh, so that I could see it in the high definition. And uh, I haven't watched it too often since then in the last few years, uh, partly because it's one of those films that I want to give my full attention to when I do see it. Uh, I think it's that important of a movie that it's worth really only watching it when you're actually able to commit yourself to the experience of viewing it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's a long film, right? But it's, um, yeah, it's not one that you can casually watch. But at the same time, it does have a quality to it where you can, I think you can kind of start watching it toward the middle of the film and still get something out of it. I mean, granted, uh, you lose the entire experience, but it does have kind of a, a slice of life quality to it where uh, it certainly isn't uh, following a traditional narrative structure. Um, but we can talk about that in more detail here later. I, I, I guess I, I should probably go into my own background on the film. So I, as you know, Nate, this is my favorite film of all time. And Absolutely. I, I just, if I can interrupt for a second there, I wanted to talk about this movie pretty much since we started the podcast. Yeah. But I knew I had to wait till you picked it. It was like, I can't pick his favorite movie. That's your job. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to usurp it. So, all right, sorry, go ahead. No, that's all right. So, yeah, my favorite film of all time. I mean, is it the greatest film I've ever seen? So we always have that discussion about the distinction between favorite and, and best. Um, I I would still say it's even up there in terms of one of the greatest films I've ever seen. But just my personal favorite film. I mean, this this was in a way this was kind of like the gateway drug into cinema for me uh, in terms of taking cinema more seriously or wanting to learn more about cinema. Uh, I was always a movie fan, but I never really, uh, never really looked at or looked into studying cinema in great detail uh, until I saw this film in many ways. I, or maybe I should say, see, I'm already having trouble articulating <laughs> the power of this film has um, over me, but I should say that it really expanded my mind in terms of the definition of a movie or, or what a film could be and, and how uh, a film could communicate things on a spiritual level in particular. Um, so I, I initially saw this on DVD. You know, I didn't see this in the theater, so I was kind of late to the party. Uh, fortunately I was able to see it on a 35 millimeter print locally at the Walker Art Center. They did a Malik retrospective, uh, a few years ago. So I was fortunate enough to actually see it on film. But by that time I had seen the film many times. Uh, of course the, the Criterion Blu-ray was a godsend and, uh, it's one of my most treasured, uh, discs in the collection, uh, certainly. So seeing this film was really a spiritual experience for me. And every time I see it, it still reaches those heights. And it's something that's influenced 
my own filmmaking style. Uh, it, it was my first exposure to Malick and we can get into, you know, this, the place of this film in his catalog, uh, later on as well. But yeah, again, at a higher level for me, the thin red line is, is, is at the top of the list for films that have impacted me, uh, both on an emotional level and even on an intellectual level, just opening the door into um, the world of, of cinema from an academic standpoint. Uh, that's probably the best way to summarize my, my background with the film. I would concur with you about just the significance of this movie in terms of its overall place in cinematic history. I, I Not by any means my favorite film of all time, uh, as you well know, that's the Terminator, which is just as angelic and cerebral as Terrence Malick. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say this is easily one of the top 25 films ever made in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hesitate to think of it as being in that tier. And uh, I would say probably second or third best film made in my lifetime. So it really is truly just a powerhouse of a, of a motion picture. Naturally, I think, you know, Matt, you and I obviously both love this movie, and so that we're going to be, you know, fawning over it, I yeah. think, in our conversation here tonight, uh, which is fine because sometimes films are truly great and they evoke that in, in a critic. But I obviously have not responded to it quite the same way you did uh, in terms of its impact on me. Partly, I had certainly already delved into cinema as a subject of serious study before seeing this film and mm-hmm. had really started to examine cinematic grammar ahead of seeing this and uh, narrative. But what it did do for me, I think, is really expand my own understanding of how narrative works. And this is largely achieved through its use of voiceover narration. Uh, the film is a perfect example of something being made in the editing room. Uh, there's the stories about the original assembly cut was six hours long. Uh, then there was about a three and a half hour version that was done with uh, voiceover narration by Billy Bob Thornton. And that was scrapped. And now we have this two hour and 51 minute version with multiple voiceovers uh, from different characters in the film. And sequences that come together uh, that were really almost the creation of the editors, not even so much the creation of Malick, but obviously taking their cues from him. This is unmistakably Terrence Malick's style, uh, but I would say perhaps the most perfect embodiment of his style. His his work of late has been really devoid of any substance, uh, really almost devoid of any form, to be perfectly honest. Uh, But... Uh, I think this here is the is the highlight of what he is able to do as a filmmaker, and uh, what he is able to accomplish through that that unique narrative approach is he is able to transcend genre. He is able to uh, speak to the human condition because you have these various figures presenting the voiceover narration in it, and allowing us to really start to understand the army as a whole. And then through the army, really, this is about man, right? I think that's what makes this so uniquely different from other war films, particularly of its own year, right? The immediate comparison you have to make is with Saving Private Ryan, is that those are movies about men in war. But this is a film that's actually about man himself. And it uses war as a means by which it can say something about humanity, and I think it correctly understands, and this is maybe stepping outside of the 
the cinematic consideration of it, but more to just my own personal thought of how do we study anthropological questions, is that war becomes a necessary part of, of understanding our humanity, understanding man in the world. And I think this film recognizes that and uses war to say greater truths about the fallen state of the human person. And it does a great job with it and largely is able to accomplish this because of its narrative focus. Uh, obviously expertly made, incredibly beautiful film to watch. And majestic scoring, all of those figures, uh, features are right there. But it's in the narrative, I think, that this film really obtains its greatness and enters into that quality of being one of the 20, 25 greatest films ever made. Well, I, I kind of struggled with how we would approach our conversation uh, regarding this film. We can be free-flowing here, you know? It's, it's well, a Malick film, right? Yeah, maybe I mean... We'll just and maybe we'll walk off for 20 minutes and let people listen to some sound of, you know, wind blowing through the leaves, and then we'll come back and talk. You know, who knows? <laughs> That's it might be a good idea. Just give people a little bit, bit of a breather. Um, they might need it by the end, uh, considering how, how like you said, it will be fawning over this film. But I, I mean, I I figured kind of breaking it down to its into its respective components uh, in terms of story and themes and acting and the technical aspects might be a good way to approach it. But uh, as you said, they all are intertwined. So maybe that's maybe we should just let the conversation play out um, as it does. Uh, but your your points are well taken. I mean, you're, you're correct to say that, yeah, this is not a film about the campaign on Guadalcanal. You know, that is the setting. That is the, the means by which uh, themes of humanity are being explored. And, and not only humanity, but, you know, humanity's relationship with nature. And, and um, you know, the, the film opens with, uh, the voiceover narration speaking about, you know, the avenging power of nature, um, you know, not one power, but two, but, you know, good, good versus evil. Uh, we can see that in nature to a degree, we can see forces of creation and destruction and, and that nature is within each human heart as well. So there, there's really a, a very clear connection that, that Malik's trying to make between, um, the person and the environment in which the person exists. So constantly throughout the film, we're, we're seeing images of nature. Uh, we're seeing, you know, a baby bird that's struggling, you know, details that, that may seem pretentious to some, but that are really uh, vital to, to what Malik is saying in this picture. And your, your take on, on the use of voiceover and story structures uh, is worth noting too. I mean, yeah, this film was very groundbreaking to me just in terms of how it used voiceover and how it, uh, really kind of dispensed with a typical story structure. Uh, I mean, the through line here is private wit, right? If we had to pick one main character, it's him, but even this is still very much an ensemble picture and his, you know, Wit's journey is kind of the, the spiritual core of the film. And we do ultimately come back to his story as, as kind of that touchstone uh, as we make this journey uh, with all these characters. But the use of voiceover is interesting because 
we're we're not sure who is speaking most of the time. And if I recall, and I'm not sure if the the Criterion Blu-ray has this, but at least on the DVD, it actually would indicate who is speaking during the voiceover. And a lot of the voiceover comes from characters that we barely see in the film. Uh, yeah, yeah, private uh, train, train, train in particular, who we see in right. the uh, early parts of the film in the bowels of the ship when he's talking about, uh, you know, the only things that are certain are, are dying in the Lord. So that, that character who that's really his only dialogue scene until the end of the film when he's back on the ship after, um, after the battle, his, his voice is heard several times. And, and that's interesting, you know, you know, is this a, a consequence of just fragmentation from the editing process? It could be, but it just speaks to the idea that this is one collective army. This is one collective soul, one big soul that everyone's a part of. Uh, so it doesn't really matter who's speaking, right? I mean, this is, this is humanity speaking. This is not one particular character necessarily. Uh, so it's it's less important, and that's that's a challenging idea from the get go. And and by the time you are into the film, you realize that that's that's what's happening, and and the identity of who's speaking just really isn't important. So uh, again, kind of taking those typical war movie tropes and reframing reframing or reframing them in a way that was just really unprecedented uh so narratively this is just a really groundbreaking film i think uh i mean uh, this can kind of delve into our uh, discussion regarding the editing the there's a supplement on the criterion disc with uh, a couple of the editors and um i probably should mention their names uh just billy weber leslie jones and exactly. uh yep. sar klein yep you got it uh and their their description of the experience of editing this film is is quite revealing, and I, I agree. I mean, this this the the structure of this film, the feel of this film, is Malick through and through, right? So he clearly was involved, but at the same time, they seem to have a fair amount of independence uh, to create sequences they felt were in his style to piece together what sounded like an incredible amount of footage that was shot, uh, to create some kind of a narrative structure that, that, uh, would work. And it sounded like a lot of experimentation took place. I mean, they even had to forcibly sit Malik down to watch a cut of the film so they could get some feedback, which I thought was interesting. Uh, so, who who ultimately made this film? I mean, I think that's a point of debate too. Is this, as you said, it's a film made in the editing room, but I I don't think you get a film like this without Terrence Malick, right? I mean, you can have uh, maybe a point of uh, of entry for the editors, but that those guidelines clearly have to be established, and I don't think you you get a film that is this well defined in its craft and vision. Uh, without that singular voice being involved throughout the process in some meaningful way. So the, part of the appeal of this film is just kind of the mystery behind how it was made, right? I mean, I, I, that's one thing that just is endlessly intriguing to me about this. Uh, you hear about these mythical long cuts. You hear uh, about entire characters that were excised, and we see some samples of that in, in the deleted material on the Criterion disc. 
uh, and of course, you know, Adrian Brody's character was intended to be the main character of the film. And by the time the film was completed... He went to the premiere thinking he was the main character. Yes, that's correct. So he... <laughs> I mean, what a shocking experience that must have been for him. But I think we can safely say that the version we have uh, is superior. I mean, I think they looked at the footage, they looked at Jim Caviezel's performance, and they felt that, you know, this is the heart and soul of the pictures is this performance and, and rightfully so. Um, so uh, any thoughts, Nate, on, on any of that? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think your reaction seems very much in the emotional response yeah. and that's very much how this movie works. It does play to your emotions uh, but I think my reaction is a little bit more on the intellectual side, the philosophical side. Malik was himself a, a doctoral student in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And surprise, surprise, being a philosopher, right, uh, on my own <laughs> part, that that would be an aspect that speaks to me. And phenomenology in particular, uh, was uh, he was, uh, I believe, translating Heidegger and his work in phenomenology. So this would be something that's very apparent in a lot of his thinking. Yep. Uh, but I do think that's what I've always been drawn to about this movie. More than the emotional is more the intellectual aspect of it and how it really is considering the nature of war, the nature of man, the nature of nature, uh, the debates that happen uh, with regard to nature, and the way it uses nature photography to draw themes. Uh, Obviously, cinematography is something that needs to be talked about here because yeah. this is one of the most beautiful films ever made. Yeah. There, there's no arguing that. I, even when it came out, and it was not by any means a universally beloved film, critically, commercially at all. It was not the great t- uh, towering success. It's very of divisive, other even pictures. to this day, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly, I would say, overall a positively received film, but it's not. Uh, most people aren't you and me. Right, uh, yeah. c- claiming this is one of the twenty-five greatest films ever made. So um, we, we're obviously in that group that really has responded to this movie. Um, but I look at the the way in which the photography is used, the cinematography is used here. It's not just nice, pretty pictures. I mean, yes, you can do beautiful nature photography in a movie, and there's plenty of films that do have that, and it's easy to win an Oscar with that. You're something out of Africa, the English patient. We have these magnificent landscapes, but this not unlike, uh, say the work of David Lean, uh, when he was making his epics, uh, has a way of using the landscape, using nature to actually build character, to articulate themes. So we look at the opening shot. It's almost like a a few seconds of a prelude before the movie begins is that yeah. alligator, or excuse me, that crocodile, no alligator, it's an alligator, uh, going down into the uh, water, right? Sneaking underneath, disappearing underneath the sludge. And it's such a richly symbolic opening, right? Yeah. And it gets at that idea of nature, that nature isn't this wonderful, pristine, one, great thing. And, oh, if only nature was so beautiful and preserved and protected, Everything would be great, and war comes along and destroys nature. That's such a simplistic interpretation of of war and of life. And I Uh, I hear that interpretation a lot with this film, actually, which I think is wrong. No, people people try to argue that on this film all the time. It's like, did you even watch the movie, right? I mean, the the opening shot of a film is always an incredibly important thing to interpret because that is 
your your beginning, right? And so a sh- an opening shot, if a director knows what he's doing, if a film crew knows what it's doing, that shot is is well considered and thought because it's what begins the whole process. And this is not only an opening shot, but it doesn't directly connect to anything else right away. And it's telling you something of what's going to be following, what this movie is really about. And there is sort of something majestic about that uh, alligator as it's going down, the way it moves and the way it disappears. And it's something that's very much mirrored in how the soldiers are going to be approaching the hill, right? They're constantly hiding in the grass, disappearing into the nature. And there's something lurking underneath nature that is dangerous. And I think that's what Malik's getting at. He's really actually, I think, if I can maybe make the, this a theological consideration. I mean, we've been hitting theology a lot, by the way, in the last few uh, podcasts. Uh, yeah. But it is much, very much about the fall, right? The fall from grace. And I think that's what this movie shows. And then it shows how the world has fallen. It shows how man has fallen. And yet there is that sense of transcendence, right? And you see that mostly through the character of Wit. And you, of course, are introduced to Wit on that island, right? Away from the war that seems to know had nothing of the war. And with the native population on the Solomon Islands. So it's, it's just a great film in terms of how it uses nature photography. And um, it, it definitely, I think, and from a cinematic point of view, just the, the, the visuals here, the crane work, Everything is just the most splendid use of cinematography in probably the last 40 years, 50 years. I don't know. Uh, it just, nothing comes close. Yeah, and and it's cinematography with a clear purpose in terms of its the choices that it's making. I mean, that, that you right, mentioned... Right, it's not masturbatory. Exactly. I mean, it's not just, oh, this shot would look cool. And uh, the crane, I mean, the crane shots, those are the perfect example, right? So you're talking about the soldiers being hidden among the grass, popping in and out, uh, and what that is saying on a thematic level. But, you know, the crane shots, I mean, it's basically like a God's eye view, essentially, of what's going on. The, the, the camera is almost impossibly floating over this rough, ragged terrain. And, uh, through the the chaos of battle as these explosions are going off, I mean, just the speed of some of those crane and dolly shots are just startling. Uh, during, they still amaze me. All the, twenty years later, I still look just, at those. They're and think, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and and I, I'm amazed that that more films haven't tried to copy this film. I guess you know, in terms of uh, those those shots. I mean, I, I guess. You certainly have some filmmakers that go for the Malick style, quote unquote, but not like this film. I mean, this film, I think, really has its own very singular voice, even though it's undeniably Malick. It it has a, a balance of the elliptical sections and a balance of kind of your more straightforward narrative sections that that none of other uh, Malick films really equal uh, in terms of... Uh, um, Again, in terms of just that level of balance. But the, yeah, those shots, just from a technical standpoint, how they accomplish those shots, I'm still amazed and, and not even entirely sure how they, how they uh, achieved what, what they captured on film. And, and yeah, this is, this is shooting on film, right? This is not digital. Uh, this is mostly natural light. 
it's it's really a miracle uh, that some of the images that were captured here. And you hear about just the amount of footage that was shot. It's like, man, what what was left on the cutting room floor? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I, you hope that they they grab the best bits, but with the whole kill your darlings idea, I'm sure there's some spectacular stuff that had to be left at the wayside for the sake of the film. Uh, but it's, it's John Toll's finest work. No question about it. I mean, the man has shot some beautiful films, uh, legends of the fall and Braveheart and, uh, the list goes on, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is the pinnacle of his, his career. I don't, I don't see it ever being beat. No, maybe it just because we we're gonna have to do it, so maybe it's worth doing it right now. Is the comparison with this and Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, and uh, let's just perhaps just delve straight into that and talk about it uh, because obviously on a cinematic level, there's an interesting relationship between these movies. The two of them squared off in terms of, I guess you could say, popular opinion in 1998, mm-hmm. and Saving Private Ryan's the obvious victor in that. Uh, it's the one that people still remember and watch far more frequently to this day. And I would say, in, in some ways, Private Ryan has the much more uh, significant impact in movies going forward, right? I mean, just yeah. the way it used shutter speed. And I, I want to make it very clear, I'm not trying to necessarily criticize Saving Private Ryan's achievements, because where it succeeds, it does succeed incredibly. It's, it's revolutionary in its way of shooting a battle scene. Yeah, and nobody had seen anything like that in 1998 when that opened up, right? Nothing had ever gotten close to that in terms of battle scenes before, uh, and so it, I really can't fault Janusz Kaminski's cinematography, Michael Kahn's editing, and Spielberg's direction of those scenes, and and not even just the battle scenes, but just a lot of what they did in the rest of the movie as well. Uh, but I think that this is the superior film uh, because. While it doesn't operate as viscerally, uh, it does have a lot more to say. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is a very straightforward, simplistic, and uninteresting script. Uh, It doesn't have any real significant contributions to say about war or about life. And it's... It's actually kind of a hagiography of the of the quote greatest generation unquote right that was so popular at that time and it ushered that in, and then this movie comes along about seven months later. Everybody else is feeling this little bit of nostalgia for World War II at that point. You know their grandpas are still around and grandpa, what was it like when you were in World War II? And America at late nineties is king of the world, right? I mean, Soviet Union's down. Nine eleven hasn't happened yet. We're in great peace and prosperity. Uh, so yeah, why don't we think about World War II as that great triumph that ushered in the American century and brought us into the the dominant global power and uh, and the the heroism of these men? And here you have a film that completely undercuts a lot of that. And uh, what it sees in war is so radically different than what Saving Private Ryan sees in war. Even the titles are so incredibly important because you think of that title, Saving Private Ryan. It's heroic in nature. It's goal-oriented, uh, and it's concrete. The Thin Red Line, if I'm just li- watching this, I don't. there's no reference to it explicitly in the movie. Uh, if you've read the novel, you'll know what it's about. But So it's steeped in mystery. And the, ultimately, if, for those who don't know, I mean, it's coming from James Jones' own idea, right? There's a thin red line between the sane and the mad. Yeah. And it's looking at how war can break you 
or how it can make you. I, I think it looks at both sides of this. And uh, what you see in here is so much more complex. And if you look at the way the battle scenes, for example, are staged, Saving Private Ryan, no doubt, is the greater accomplishment in terms of battle scenes. It's more innovative. Uh, it's more impactful. And it has longer uh, value in terms of how movies were made following it. So it has the greater impact, without a doubt. But the thing is, Spielberg is a blockbuster director. And so what he is going to do is use his expertise in terms of how he does the line of action, how he is going to uh, pace uh, the, the rhythm of a scene uh, to create something that's inherently entertaining and visceral. And while, yes, there's something horrifying, and if particularly if, if people were able to go see Saving Private Ryan in the theater in 98, having never seen anything like that before, it was overwhelming. I remember that D-Day scene and the final battle scene in the theater when I saw it uh, in the uh, early summer of 1998. Uh, It was something that was just so overwhelming and so horrifying, but you kind of like, that's kick-ass. There's nothing kick-ass about the battles in the Thin Red Line. It's exhausting. You don't really understand the objective you don't really understand who is alive and who is dead. And that's war. And that's actually, even though it's certainly not as technically accurate, the uniforms, you know, I hear military experts uh, watching this movie and go, well, that's not exactly the way it was in Guadalcanal. That's not exactly how those uniforms were. That terminology isn't quite right. You know, saying prime gets all that stuff. It gets all those mechanics right. But this, I think, gets at the nature of modern warfare so much more accurately. The randomness of it, the impact of it, and again, those cutaway shots, you mentioned the bird uh, in the one scene. Uh, what's that about, right? I mean, it's obviously drawing out a connection for us. Is the, is the bird struggling because of the war? Was there something where it got stepped upon or it was knocked out of its, out of its uh, nest uh, because of the fighting and the bombing and the, sh- you know, the shelling? Or is it just this happens to be happening alongside the war? I mean, there's so much food for thought and so much yeah. consideration in this that I I think that it is the superior film to, th- to Saving Private Ryan uh, in so many ways. And I don't know. I know you're a much bigger fan, I think, of Saving Private Ryan than I am. Uh, but I'm just interested to hear your comparison of the two. Yeah, you know, I, I've kind of cooled on Saving Private Ryan over the years. I mean, I, I think the appeal to me initially was a lot of the things you discussed just from a technical standpoint, you know, we had never seen combat depicted on film in this way. And it's a visceral, powerful experience. I mean, I just remember that the Omaha beach sequence, seeing that for the first time, I mean, it was just, I mean, it was traumatic in a way watching that. I mean, of course it doesn't compare to those that have experienced real combat, but it, it just, it seemed to strip away the veneer of Hollywood um, in terms of its depiction of combat. But at the same time, you know, looking back on the film now, it's still a very Hollywood film, right? I mean, it has, as you said, a very simple through line. The script is very straightforward. I think thematically it doesn't have a lot of ambition. I think Spielberg's interest in the film was to say, I want to create a World War II film that is as accurate as we can make it in terms of its depiction of combat. And I think it does that extremely well. Um, and yeah, just the, the cinematography uh, contributions are there too. Just, uh, I mean, how many war films have copied 
Private Ryan's shutter speed and desaturated look and handheld photography. I mean, it. it and it would be on war films, right? Yeah. There's a lot of you know police procedurals started yep. going that way. I mean, it, it's a huge impact in terms huge. of cinema. Yeah, hugely influential. I mean, nothing nothing had ever looked like that film. I think people really forget that aspect of it, just how how different uh, its presentation was. Um, the bleach bypass process and and just the, the graininess, the use of handheld. I mean, it's just something we take for granted now, but at the time it was it was just something people hadn't seen in that way. Uh, so I, it's hard for me to ignore the accomplishments of that film in that regard. Um, I, you know, I, I still think it's a very strong film, but yeah, I, I, I have, I guess... Like I said, my my opinion of it has tempered over the years, and and this certainly is the superior film. Uh, and I seem to recall you and I, Nate, having a debate about you know which film has better editing in the past. And I think my initial inclination was to say, well, Private Ryan, you know, the editing, especially of that opening sequence, uh, is pretty astounding, but. In some ways, it's an apple and or, or apples and oranges kind of debate to say, well, it's hard to compare one one versus the other, and and we wouldn't even be having this conversation if they were released in different years, right? So it's it's kind of the proximity of these films that 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 makes that comparison inevitable. Just like very true, Deep Impact and Armageddon, or um, you know, uh, Dante's Ants Peak and, and Volcano, <laughs> or <laughs> is that? Are those the volcano films that came out that year? I, I can't remember. Um, so uh, sometimes you, you get these competing studio films that come out in close proximity. So this is uh, probably more a matter of coincidence than than direct you know reaction to one another in terms of them being made. Um, so in, in some ways, it's hard to compare them because they're they're films that are really trying to accomplish very different things. But Thin Red Line obviously has more ambitious goals and I, I think it achieves them uh whereas whereas private ryan you know could it have been something more probably but you know it's a spielberg film and and there's certain things you expect from a spielberg film and private ryan really has those elements so spielberg uh, likes syrup and he likes uh he likes you to leave happy and yeah that's i mean what private ryan yeah delivers. He, exactly you know and uh he wants to give people a satisfying narrative experience and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's what he likes to deliver and that's what people expect. Um, but Malik isn't interested in that, right? I mean, Malik is, is interested in, in philosophy. He's interested in, in greater questions. Um, so that uh, it's hard hard for this film to connect with a lot of people because of that ambiguity and because of uh the fact that yeah it's not going to tie any everything into a little bow uh like like private ryan does you know with the opening and closing shots of the fluttering flag uh that's that's spielberg kind of in a nutshell but i think the thin red line really suffered because of that close proximity because yeah it was definitely overshadowed yeah it. it was definitely overshadowed and and you know, it's I listen. I'm obviously I have my my clear obvious preference of which I think is the better film, the more deserving film of adulation, right? But I I'm not going to be that condescending uh, jerk who's 
saying you you plebs how dare you 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 ignorant masses because i yeah, get I'm not, why I'm not saying that Ryan, either yeah right and no i don't think you are either but it's it's i i get why saving private ryan was the top box office hit of 1998 i get why it was on critics' best lists and why Spielberg won the Best Director Oscar and all that stuff. I, I understand that. Uh, so there, there's not a reason uh, to necessarily criticize all of that about it. But I just you think, you know, that movie delivered a certain kind of experience. It is v- delivering it so well that then I hear, oh, there's another World War II movie coming out. It's going to be the same thing, right? So a bunch of people go to see this movie not realizing that this is entirely different than Private Ryan mm-hmm. and bringing with it the expectation of Private Ryan. And then I just, as I was watching this just a couple of days ago, Matt, uh, for the Thin Red Line in anticipation of our conversation here, I was thinking about the fact that you're almost 50 minutes into the film before any battle type stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, Private Ryan takes the first 30 minutes to do nothing but a battle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, your your initial sort of encounter with the battle, the buildup, you know, I remember in the theater, you know, as they're getting ready to land on Guadalcanal, they're like, okay, it's going to get intense, it's going to get intense. And they unload, they start storming the beach, and there's no fire, and they just kind of go, okay, I guess we're going to march now. And then they march, <laughs> and they march, and they march. You know, and so, I mean, I can see why if I'm just a person who wants to go watch a war movie, I want to see... Um, clear three-act structure and I want to see uh, character arcs that are satisfying and complete and then end with me fully informed of what I'm supposed to know and understand about them. Uh, This movie is kind of being punched in the face, right? If I went in watching that. Now, it's not that that's what The Thin Red Line ever set out to be, uh, but I think inevitably people took it that that's the kind of movie it was going to be because they had just seen this smashing success less than a year earlier. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, I mean, just watching it again recently, I I kind of felt the same way, you know, if, if I'm just expecting a normal war film, boy, there's a lot of shots of people walking in the beginning there. <laughs> and I can see people yeah, he's just... Like, he's on an island with a bunch of natives, he's <laughs> canoeing. <laughs> what? <laughs> and... Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of teases where you'd expect battle to occur and it doesn't and and but Malik is drawing you in, you know, it's he's he's really immersing you in this environment and when, when that battle hits, that is a sucker punch. And it's a pretty lengthy sequence too. I mean, it's not just a little quick um uh quick part of the film. But it's but exhausting. I, it's know? exhausting. I mean, yeah, the... it's exhausting. I I think I, I mean, that's a good word for it. And I think the sequence that even emphasizes that more is uh, when that squad uh, led by John Cusack takes out that bunker. I mean, that sequence is just amazing. In some ways more powerful and certainly more personal than even that large battle. I mean, the large battle, of course, has the sweeping crane shots and and just the the visual um, splendor, if you could call it that. But just the just the the tooth and nail clawing through the dirt, exhausting quality of battle is just incredibly um, captured in that that sequence where they're taking that bunker, and you feel their exhaustion, and you feel, I mean, dare I say it, the elation of of victory, but it's a very short lived moment, right? You know they. 
they realize the intensity of what they've gone through. They realize the intensity uh, of of killing, and there's that quiet moment between Bell and Dahl where they're just weeping. Essentially, I mean, they're they're happy that it's it's such a complicated portion of the scene emotionally you know it's like are they crying because they've survived are, is it, are these tears of joy are they crying because they've been forced to kill and take and, and, and take uh, another uh, person's life it's it's probably all of those things and I mean great performances but I, I can't think of another scene that just depicts the fatigue of battle in in such a powerful way um and that's where I'd say this is not just a um, artistically brilliant film, but a morally brilliant film. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't give you cheap elation from a battle. It it, it it draws out the complexity. It draws out the nuance. And it's not maybe the most historically accurate depiction of these battles or the most realistic and expertly staged depiction of them. But it does get at a morality of war that other films don't. And I guess I see that playing out uh, in so much of the performances, you referenced uh, Bell and Dahl. Uh, so Ben Chaplin plays Private Bell, and uh, Private Dahl, uh, I think, is uh, what was the actor's name? Da- uh, Dash, Dash Mihawk. Dash, Dash Mihawk, yes. Yep. I mean, they both are excellent in it. But really, where I think the, the morality of this movie plays out is principally in Wit by Jim Caviezel and Sergeant Welsh by Sean Penn, right? Yeah, they're, they're the clearly, core. Clearly two views of the world and of man that are running into one another and also, I think, getting a glimpse of one another. And uh, maybe it's just worth focusing in on these performances because uh, as well as Nick Nolte and Elias Cotius, uh, just truly, truly powerful performances uh, in this ensemble. And um, I, I guess I looked at this as being probably Sean Penn's best performance in his career. Uh, yeah. Really just great. And that, that voiceover narration he gives at the end, uh, that line, if I never meet you in this life, let me feel the lack. Uh, and just it's such a powerfully composed bit of narration there. Yeah. I remember actually writing in college for a, a English literature class, a, a paper on that uh, as a poem, because it really, the narration is poetic. And, um, I, you know, it had that much substance to it that I, I spent, you know, 10, 15 pages writing about just those few lines of dialogue there. Uh, and I think that performances, particularly with Caviezel and Penn, really, really give us a great understanding of the the questions that this wants us to take about what does war do to us and where does it go? And, of course, even the way that you see how uh, Private Bell himself being this truly devoted to his wife and then the heartbreak when she betrays him because she just had been alone for too long. You yeah. know, he'd been off to war for so long and, and the way that just tears him apart and the, it's worse than being killed in battle, right? Uh, so, I mean, the way it just deals with the the, the devastation of war and yet and through Witt's character in particular, the ability to persevere and to bring grace into the most ungraceful of situations is just a beautiful uh, point of meditation. Well, back to Witt and Welsh. I mean, they, 
the characters are designed to be in conflict right throughout the film as as, as good good character work should uh so you kind of have these little pairings so you have um uh, of course tall and staros uh facing off wit and welsh uh but back to wit and welsh you know, each of them has a very clear arc in the film that I think is sometimes overlooked. You know, people kind of look to Wit as, well, he's he's the spiritual one. He's the Christ-like figure in the film. You know, he's the, the proto hippie or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he's floating above the the chaos. But I mean, if you pay attention at the beginning of the film, he is not there. You know, from a spiritual standpoint, I mean, he's he's in tune to, well, you know, there's another world, there's something beyond this world, or he at least wants to believe that. But in the, the opening uh, scene, when he's talking about his mother dying, he's very clearly not buying into the spiritual world at that point, you know, um, talking about seeing how she was just basically shriveling up. She was gray. She, you know, he was afraid to touch the death that he had seen in her and he couldn't find anything beautiful or uplifting about her going back to God. So he's very clear, uh, about his skepticism, right? Uh, couple that with his final moment in the film when he surrenders, uh, his life essentially, uh, to, to those Japanese troops that are encircling him. He, I mean, what a transcendent moment, right? I mean, just from a cinematic standpoint, but just from a performance standpoint, uh, Jim Caviezel's, his eyes throughout this film are incredible and in what he communicates through them. And, and that, that moment when he raises his gun and he's put right back into the opening of the film, he's right back into, you know, what he sees as paradise, what he sees as the next life, um, that I mean, that's his journey. But you know, Welsh has a, a similar journey, and 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 that scene between the two of them in that abandoned house is one of my favorite scenes in the film, where Wit tells Welsh that you know he still sees a spark in him, and we see that spark come to fruition. In the line that you said, right about let me feel the lack. You know, he he is in that moment identifying. Maybe there is a greater force. Maybe there is a God, and. He's speaking to God in that scene. I mean, that's something that we never expected him to ever do uh, throughout the rest of the film, uh, especially in the opening, uh, in the in the brig there where he's interrogating Wit and, and making it very clear there's no no world but this one. So we there there are spiritual journeys taking place here, and uh, they're subtle though. You know, they're subtle journeys. They're uh, but the details are there. I mean that there's just so many layers to this film that are, I just think are incredible. Um, but yeah, Staros and, uh, tall, you know, I mean, that's, that's an example of taking a very typical war trope, right? You have the, uh, the aggressive commanding officer who will stop at nothing to win. Uh, and then you have the, the more caring, compassionate, uh, lower ranking officer who just cares about his men. Um, you know, you could say that those are war, war film cliches, right? But, uh, there's a lot more going on here. And, and Tall's character is a very damaged character and he's someone that's, um, sacrificed 
probably what he sees is too much in his life for for what you know for the 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 fleeting chance of uh victory in battle yeah, well I, and let's you know just to go on the staros and tall uh dynamic there right so elias Cotius, i think actually gives the best performance in the whole film uh that's certainly debatable because there's a lot of great performances here, but that's the one that certainly has always struck me ever since I first saw this film until this day. And each time I watch it, his, the way he really works with that character is great, but also Nick Nolte is fantastic as Colonel tall. Yeah. And what I really loved about it, because you're right, Matt, that that those two in particular get maybe at the closest to the war cliches. Um, but I think that that's a prime example of actors elevating the material yeah. because the damaged nature of tall, for example, is so wonderfully played by Nolte. And it's partly because of, you know, the, the voiceover narration that sets it up. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the opening with John Travolta there. I mean, really right, defines yep. his character. Right. But you know, even when he has that scene with John Cusack and the way he's talking about, you know, what he wants to do and why he's doing this and, then bringing in his son, his son isn't following. His son's a bait salesman, right? And you see just the whole complexity of that character, the psychology of him. Uh, so it's not just a stereotype, right? You 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 really come to empathize with this man who, yeah. prior to that point, you're not really supposed to empathize with, and you get the sense that well, maybe he isn't just purely evil, right? And it, maybe he actually's got a point, right? And Staros, you 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 certainly very much uh see that he loves his men although as, as a scotch aficionado i just have to say when he hands them the bottle of johnny walker red label i that's more of an insult <laughs> than anything else but anyways um it, you know it's it's one of those things where you just recognize that he is he does want to you know do the right thing but tall has a point you, you can't just try to move all this way around to avoid a fight you're in a war and uh, the debate of you know the look at the vines wrapping around those trees. Nature is cruel. Yeah. Uh, they both have something that they're tapping into of reality, and the both the performances I think flesh out these characters in a fairly minimal amount of screen time, and do just inc- make you resonate with them uh, beyond just the the shall we say mechanical role they play in the movie uh, to actually become real people that you can actually relate to. And then Private Bell as well, as you mentioned. Um, Some of the most beautiful shots in the film are his flashbacks to him and his wife. The swings? I I love the swings. Yeah, that shot is just incredible. I mean, that that little sequence, if I had to pick out one sequence from the film that um, would probably communicate to people what this film is, uh, at least from a, um, stylistic standpoint, you know, it's, it's the scene where, where he's reading the letter, um, not the dear John letter, but the, the letter to his wife about, you know, the blood filth and noise. And, and then we eventually get into the sequence about love and the, the shot of the swings. Love, where does it come from? Yeah. It's just that scene is, uh, yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I, I, I can't, I can't put, I can't put it into words. That's an incredible sequence. It's, it is, and it's just, it's fascinating to me because as I'm thinking about this, you know, I can quote from the narration pretty readily. There's different bits of the narration that have really stuck with me, and you know, yeah. ideas that are expressed in it that really s- s- resonate, and you want to think about and meditate on. 
And the dialogue, not as often. There's a few, but it's more in that narration that you'll find the, the real great uh, writing mm-hmm. uh, for this film. So it's just it's something that just kind of occurred to me right now as I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Well, we should mention the music, too. We kind of touched on it before, but Hans Zimmer's score here is really another groundbreaking uh, element to this film. So Journey to the Line, of course, is kind of the, the centerpiece uh, bit of score uh, playing. And an oft-imitated aspect of the score, right? Incredible. If, if this movie has yeah. legs, I suppose, in terms of how it influenced future, movie, future movies, it's Zimmer's score. It's it's that that piece of music in particular. I mean, you can... That piece of music has been used as temp score in so many other films, you can tell, because uh, the original score that was composed after the use of this piece as temp score is so similar uh, in in many ways that Clearly, it's a very influential piece of music. It's a very interesting piece of music structurally. I mean, it's just a very... You don't really hear pieces of music like this, especially in films. Uh, So just the use of music here as not something that punctuates action, right? It's kind of its own voice in the film. And and these sequences are built on top of these pieces. You know, Hans Zimmer wrote... Uh, a lot of these pieces independent of the the picture, right? And, and that's kind of how Malick, I think it traditionally has worked with composers, much to composers' frustration. I, I mean, James Horner, famously on The New World, uh, was extremely frustrated with his experience working with Malick because, you know, he was very accustomed to, to working on a finished film or working on, you know, scoring particular scenes, and, and Malick just has a different way of working. So, uh, but the Zimmer score is just outstanding here. It's very powerful, brings all those elements together, in, in especially in the more lyrical um, portions of the film. Uh, so, it, hard to hard to overstate. I think the influence of this um, of this score and its use of source music is significant to the Fari um, Requiem in the opening. Um, is, is a piece the that stands question. out as well. What's that? Uh, the unanswered I, question that they yeah. use in the, the mop-up scene. Yep, yep. I, I'm hoping they release an expanded score uh, for Thin Red Line. Uh, I know that the complete recording sessions had leaked online in the past, and I think um, you can find some of those pieces of unreleased score on YouTube. Uh, people have made videos of those. But you know, if any if any score deserves a an expanded release, it's certainly this one because the the retail album was actually fairly brief and missing quite a bit of material. It's a great score. Uh, I have the CD, and yeah. I actually bought even the Melanesian Choir CD uh, yeah. as well, which has some more uh, and stuff that isn't actually even featured in the film. Uh, you know, the unreleased music. Uh, one of the pieces that's. It's during the sequence at the beginning when Wit is on the island and uh, you have the Melanesian choir uh, later on singing, Jesus, you hold a hand long me, uh, one of their traditional uh, songs. So Zimmer composed musical setting of it and it's so beautiful, so transcendent. I will regularly listen to that piece of music uh, Whenever I kind of want to just tap into that sense of something more, right? Yeah. 
And it's it's available. You can watch it on YouTube. As a matter of fact, kind of independent of this, it just happens to be in close proximity. Uh, but I just there's a person I know who had uh, just a little bit of things going on in their life, and I, I sent her that uh, that piece of music. And I just said, listen to this, and don't listen, don't don't watch any of the pictures that are with the video. Just just listen to the music and let the music speak to you. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to talk to her uh, since I sent it only just a, little, a few days ago, but uh, I'm going to check in with her to see what kind of impact it had on her because that piece of music really is just breathtaking. And so much of this film's music is that way. Within the movie, it works great, but a lot of this music is really just something worth listening to on its own. Yeah, that's a, a great part of the opening uh, the old montage where Wit is working with the uh, the natives when that piece plays. It's great. Well, we probably should approach wrapping up our conversation, even though I think we could probably go on. Uh, hopefully people are still with us at this point. Um, I, we should talk about Criterion's release uh, of this from a few years ago. I, I was jumping for joy when I heard that Criterion was putting this out on Blu-ray. I, I couldn't believe it. it. It seemed kind of surreal to me <laughs> that they were actually doing this. Uh, and it's uh, it's got some pretty solid extras on it. It's got um, audio commentary with John Toll and Jack Fisk, uh, the production designer, and uh, Grant Hill, the producer. Quite a few interviews. I mean, I think the, the highlight being that interview with the editors, Billy Weber, uh, Leslie Jones and Sar Klein. And just the honesty of their, their stories and, and their opinions and their experience, uh, is, is pretty neat to see. I mean, these, one thing you can depend on with criterion is, you know, generally these aren't going to be really glossy overproduced features. They're pretty substantive. Uh, there's interviews with several of the film's actors, um, that were recorded, in pretty close proximity to the release of this uh, disc, so they're you know new material. Uh, there's some archival audition footage, um, some newsreels, uh, Melanesian chants, which were also available on the original uh, Fox DVD. The uh, theatrical trailer, which actually does show a few shots that didn't make it into the final film. Um, one of the great trailers, I should mention that too. I just it's one of my favorite trailers. Uh, even if I didn't like the film a whole lot, I think it's just a, a very solid trailer. Uh, it even has a little comedic bit at the end of the trailer when they're going through the cast. I don't know if you ever noticed that, Nate, with um, Woody Harrelson like screaming uh, in in sync with the Melanesian chant. Did you ever notice mm-hmm. that? Yeah. It's just a... <laughs> I don't know, It's it's a weird little comedic moment that for some reason doesn't undermine the rest of the trailer. It's kind of funny. Uh, the, the real treasure here though, is 14 minutes of outtakes from the film. You know, fans of this film were clamoring for any glimpse of all that lost footage. And, you know, there's, it's only 14 minutes and, but it's obviously, uh, curated 14 minutes of of outtakes uh one of the most we get to see mickey rourke and we get to see a little more of george clooney yep exactly uh the mickey rourke scene i think stands out a lot uh so we we got to see at least that portion of his um excised 
performance. And and the footage is is kind of rough. I mean, it obviously hasn't been um, completely restored like the rest of the film. But uh, what a treasure to have you know any glimpse of of that excised material. Um, so definitely an essential disc. Uh, it is. I, I think Criterion did a really great job, and it's a beautiful cover, as they uh, usually are. Well, I. Obviously, like you, Matt, when I saw this was announced by Criterion, I was whoop, ordering it right on Amazon right away. You know, like, pick it up first day. You know, yeah. Don't don't hesitate for a second here. And it is a great collection of extras. I agree. The the editors are well worth listening to. Uh, I really like that. I also liked um, the interview with Kaylee Jones, the daughter of James Jones, the author of the novel. I thought she had some really good insights about just her father. And about the impact of, because he was a veteran of Guadalcanal and the impact of that on him. And so that was great. And, um, you know, the commentary, I, I don't know if I've actually heard the whole commentary. I think I may have when it first came out, but it wasn't one that really struck with me uh, as I was listening to it. But, yeah, I would, I would agree. But, you know, it is, it is really just impressive to have these extra features. To me, the biggest thing is, of course, the the transfer, right? The 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 visual presentation of the film. It's never looked better on home video, and it really is. The Blu-ray release is fantastic, and definitely is a must-have for anybody who's a fan of this movie. Uh, I really anybody who's a fan of just good-looking cinema. I mean, this is a movie that's worth referencing because it does look so good. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, this is a reference quality Blu-ray for sure. I mean, this is something to show to to demo. Right. I, I will say I do take exception with your idea of the, the color art, cover art. I've never really been a big fan of it, to be honest with you. Uh, it's funny because I know the, the Tree of Life is coming out in about, oh, what, another month, I think, from today when we're recording this. Yeah. And um, the initial cover art everybody really got upset with and the uh, Criterion switched it. I actually like the original cover art for that one. Uh, and this one I've just never really... I don't know. It's it's fine. It's grown on me, I suppose. But I'm not a huge fan of this particular cover art for the Thin Red Line. I mean, could it be better? Yeah, I, I probably. But it's still um, still a neat cover, I think. I mean, I'll say it's neat, and I definitely would say that as you watch it or as you look at it, it I mean, it does. It it definitely tell, would tell you this is not your typical war film. Let's just put it that way. I mean, yeah. so nobody's going to look at this cover and go, "Oh, Saving Private Ryan Part 2, right? So uh, <laughs> it is, it is a, 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 I guess, true to a certain sense of of the film, and that's always a good thing about a cover, right? It should tell you something about what's underneath. Yeah. Well, Nate, uh, I think this question answers itself. Does the thin red line belong in the Criterion Collection? Absolutely, positively. <laughs> yeah, it's a no-brainer. Uh, needs to be in there. Should be in there. Hopefully, it means that more people will see it because I think it makes this world a better place. The more people that see this film. Um. So, Nate, if I uh, move on from this life before you. Uh, this is a film that I either want people to, you know, arrange a screening for this film, like after my funeral, <laughs> or at least put in the bulletin. Matt wants people to see this film. 
it's, it's been a touchstone, uh, in my life in many ways. I mean, I may sound silly to say that about a film, but, uh, this has had that much impact on me and anytime I can get more people to see it or uh, share it with somebody is, um, is an opportunity that I, I will take. So. Well, if I'm still kicking and I'm still uh, coherent when you bite the dust, I will uh, make sure to put that out there. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we get a screen lined up. I, I suppose you want to have the Criterion Blu-ray buried with you. Is that right? <laughs> well, if I go that far, but... Uh, uh, I mean, that, yeah, that's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, thanks for bearing with our gushing over Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Uh, the next episode will be on Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Thanks again for listening, and have a good night. <laughs>